Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. So as we get into our new season on the deep human past, we're heading into uncharted territory. We've got tons of new techniques, types of evidence, and ways of thinking about ourselves and the world that we're going to need to wrap our heads around. To help us do that, we've got a heck of a guide with us here today. He's an evolutionary geneticist and a pioneer in the field of ancient DNA. He holds the Prince Philip Professorship in Ecology and Evolution at the University of Cambridge and the Lundbeck Professorship in Evolution at Copenhagen University in Denmark. He's the director of the Center of Excellence in Geogenetics, and he's a member of the National Academy. As if all of that weren't enough, he is a dang interesting guy with a wealth of lifetime experiences. Dr. Eskavillersled, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So your team was actually the first to extract, sequence, and publish an ancient genome all the way back in the ancient days of 2010. Uh, that's work you continue with today. So how exactly do you obtain and analyze ancient DNA? Like, what does that process look like? Well, you take a piece of biological material. It can be a piece of bone or tooth. It can also be uh, things like a piece of sediments, for example, you know, ancient soil, or it can be a piece of hair. Anything you can say that really contains cells from living organisms that were once living. So in principle, each such biological material then contains DNA, which is the genetic code, right? And what you do is you dissolve this material and you isolate the DNA, you keep the DNA, and then you try to get rid of the rest of it, right? Proteins and lipids and whatever is in there. And then you multiply it. Uh, in order to make many, many billions of copies. And this is needed in order to read the genetic code, which is basically the order, you can say, of these four letters, if you want, which represents four different bases, base pairs, right? So you you then get a, a genetic code, and you can say uh, each individual, you and I, for example, have different genetic codes, but our codes are more similar to each other than it is, for example, to a chimpanzee, and that, again, is more, uh, a chimpanzee is more close to us than, for example, if you had the genetic code of an elephant. So you can use it in many different ways, right, to both uh, say something about individuals, about species, about populations, and so forth. So that all sounds really difficult. That sounds like a very incredibly hard task to, <laughs> to make sure that you get that out. What are some of the difficulties involved in doing that? Well, uh, some of the difficulties uh, relates to the DNA being highly degraded. I mean, so when an organism dies, uh, you know, the DNA will start degrading. While we are alive, our DNA will also be uh, exposed to degradation through spontaneous chemical reactions, such as hydrolysis and oxidation. So they will take place uh, spontaneously uh, when there's water and oxygen present. But because we have an repair system, you know, these damages will be repaired while we are alive. But when we die, you know, the repair system will stop functioning, but these degradation processes will continue. So basically what it means is that when you die, you know, your DNA starts getting fragmented, there starts to become uh, damages in it, and there starts to become less and less of it that you can retrieve. And therefore, you know, this is really the challenge with ancient DNA is that you're working with very little and damaged DNA. 
And that may mean that you have a risk of contamination. For example, with modern DNA, you, you have issues of reading the genetic code correctly. I mean, so there can be errors basically due to DNA damage. So that's really where you can say the, the major challenges are compared to if you're working with DNA from living organisms. Yeah, because there's the the risk of contamination. It's like you have to work in clean rooms. You have to follow a rigorous set of procedures to be sure that nobody who's handling the sample accidentally gets their DNA on it. It's like I mean, it feels like a like a very highly technically demanding process. Yeah, it's quite uh, it demands you can say for pretty clean work and special laboratories. I mean, where you have positive air pressure to keep contamination out. And in the nights, you know, every surface is uh, irradiated with UV lights to destroy any contaminant DNA. But I mean, it looks very fancy and, you know, we look like people in these robot costumes and stuff. But it's in, in reality, I would say it's not rocket science either, right? I mean, everybody <laughs> can learn it. I mean. So once we go through this process of mm. extracting the DNA, we get it, we sequence it. How then do we ask questions of it? How do we treat it as a as a reservoir of evidence with which to work? Yeah, I mean, so you can use it, then the DNA code can tell you many different things. I mean, depending on what you are interested in, right? So for example, when we retrieve DNA just from ancient sediments, I mean, from ancient dirt, let's say from a cave where there's been an excavation, we want to know what animals and plants, you know, were present in the environment at that time. Then we retrieve the DNA and we are, for example, interested to know what species was present, right, of animals and plants. And then you're looking for specific regions in the DNA that allows you to identify one species from another species, right? So then you can say, well, here was a woolly mammoth, there was a ground sloth, uh, you know, there was these and these plants, etc. But for example, when we are doing it with, um, let's say, human remains, an ancient tooth or an ancient bone, you know, then you can also start asking questions on what we call on the population level, right? It means, for example, we say, well, there's these different groups of ancient people. Back in Europe, for example, you know, you have the hunter-gatherers, you have the early farmers. You want to know, we know that the genetic code that are characterizing each of these groups are different. And then you can start saying, well, first of all, is my skeleton a farmer, genetically speaking, or is it a hunter-gatherer? Or could it be a mixture of both of them? And then you can even start, for example, if you have an admixture, you can also start to, uh, to calculate based on, on, you can say, the DNA profile, when did that admixture take place, right? I mean, when did these mm -hmm. populations meet each other and have sex with each other? creating these in hybrid uh, individuals between the populations. So you can really use it if you want to reconstruct various aspects of the history. Everything from the composition of a biological community back in time to the movements of people. When did different people meet? When did they separate from each other? And when they met with each other, how much sex if you want it they actually have with each other but you can even take it further than that you can also use the genetic code to look at adaptations for example what has been under selection so you can ask for example well is a hunter gal or have they been under the same adaptation as a farmer so you know is the digestive system between a hunter gal and a farmer is that different and there we can see 
that regions related to uh, create uh, long-chain fatty acids, for example. You know, uh, it's called the fats region in the genome. Well, that has been under massive selection when you go from hunter-gathering to farming, and that's because your food is changing. So instead of eating fish and meat, where you're getting long-chain fatty acids directly, then you're eating muesli as a farmer, early farmer, day out and day in, and there you're getting short-chain fatty acids, and your own body needs to make those short-chain fatty acids into long-chain fatty acids, you know, for your brain to work, etc. And then you can see, you know, has there been these different adaptations, right? So you can use the DNA to look at, you can say, many different aspects of biological history. Yeah, because every individual is not just an individual. You have you have ancestors, and then that number starts to get very big very quickly once you once you start counting back through generations, especially on the timescales that we're talking about prior to recorded history. So every individual, then every every genome that you look at, is a window not just onto an individual, but onto much larger groups of people. It is. I mean, it's the same if you look. We if we looked at your genome, right? It would tell you not only something about you, but it would also tell us something about your ancestry. But what is the, I would say some of the major advantages and benefits by going back in time is that first of all, I mean, if we were looking at your genome and trying to infer your history based on your genome today, we would maybe be able to say, well, there's something that looks like people in Spain today that met somebody from Germany or whatever it is, right? But we wouldn't, first of all, be able to place any of these events geographically, right? Mm -hmm. So when you take modern day genomes and you say, well, we can infer that there was some kind of mixture event between two different groups. One looked something like A and another looked like B. We wouldn't be able to say anything about from the DNA where geographically did this admixture even happen, right? Mm -hmm. And and of course, by having a skeleton, physically, you know its presence. It was found in Sweden. You have dated it to 4,000 years, right? So you know where you are in time, right? And in space. And secondly, when you look at these events, for example, admixture events, and we different groups are meeting up, sharing genetic information with each other through sexual activities, if we made those inferences based on modern genomes, you know, the error markings, if you want, for our estimates would be huge. I mean, it's very difficult to really say very precisely when did that actually happen. So we can't say anything about where it happened, and we can only very roughly say something about when it happened. And there, of course, by going back in time, you can actually go and get much, much tighter estimates, if you want, of when these things happened, and you can also place them geographically, right? And then if you even go further than that, you can say, well, if populations have gone extinct today, right? For example, the first ancient human genome you referred to that we did back in 2010 was from a so-called paleo, some people call them paleo-Eskimos, but the first people in the Arctic of Canada and Greenland and Alaska and these peoples, you know, they, they are not around today. People wouldn't, you know, we found a group of people that is not around today and people weren't aware that they existed, if you want. So therefore, if we found some paleo-Eskimo in you and we didn't have that genome, we wouldn't be able to say, well, it's actually from a paleo-Eskimo, right? Because, well, we didn't know it existed, if you want. So, so there's a number of advantages there. 
it seems to be one of the things that we discover the more ancient DNA that we get is precisely how discontinuous and fragmented human population history really is, that it is just full of groups that existed for a while, but then that didn't really go anywhere or they were demographically swamped or something happened where they have not left descendants today. Or if they have, it's very few in places that we don't know about uh, and haven't really looked for that. Like these groups are just everywhere and that there is a lot of population turnover. Yeah, there's a lot. I would say I think one of the take home messages that has come out of ancient uh, human genomics over the last 10 years is that people have been moving around. I mean, people have been way more mobile back in time than uh, what I at least was taught in school, right? And what you could read in the books, where the notion was more that many people were very stationary, you know, they changed culturally, but it was the same people, if you want, right? That just learned to do something new and stayed in the same place. And what we can see on the ancient genomics is basically this notion in general is very wrong. I mean, that people have been extremely mobile, they have spread over long distances, they have met each other, they have mixed up, then they have spread out again. After a few thousand years, they meet up again, mix up and spread out again. So it's a, it's a very dynamic history compared to the general notion. And a lot of, you can say, the cultural changes that we know of from the history and archaeology books, you know, when people talk about the Bronze Age or the Neolithic and Mesolithic, I mean, going Mesolithic on the Gal and Neolithic, you know, the early farmers and all that. You know, when you see these changes happening across the landscape, it's very often driven, actually, by migration, right? By new people entering. It's just not that they picked up something to do, they learned something new, and then they started farming instead of hunter-gathering, but it was the same people. I mean, they actually met another people, right, that came with the farming and introduced the farming and mixed up with them and so forth. So in that sense, I think ancient genomics have had a really uh, big impact in our understanding of both prehistory and history. It's been one of the really interesting things watching this field develop over about the past decade, because that was how I first got interested in it. I was studying mobility. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for sources of evidence that you could use to study mobility. And I kind of stumbled onto genomics and ancient DNA as a way of doing that. I was working on late antiquity in the the early medieval period and barbarians at the time. And so this was a big question for barbarians. Is it actually people moving or is this, is it pots or people was the the phrase that... No, exactly. And this, of course, is, uh, you can say, has been a general, I guess, challenge for classical archaeology is that, well, you find a Roman sword in Denmark, right? Uh, Well, is it because it was traded to Denmark from Italy or was the Romans actually present in Denmark, right? And no one can really, based on just the artifacts, tell you, well, was it one or the other? And this is, of course, where there's a huge advantage with the the DNA uh, genomics, because it can actually tell you, well, was there a Roman in Denmark, or was it just Danes and a Roman sword, right? So, in other words, that it was traded up there. And and that's where I think that in, in many situations where we classically believed it was a matter of trade only, it actually turns out that it wasn't just only trade, it was also people moving. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. 
because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. One of the areas that we can see that really clearly, and one of the areas that you've worked on a lot, is in the indigenous peoples of the Americas, where mm-hmm. there's an enormous amount of consistent migration. So, like, how has ancient DNA helped us better understand the origins of those people? Mm. I mean, I think that in many ways been a game changer in the sense of one of the big changes, I think, was in 2014, we sequenced the genome of 24,000-year-old boy skeleton from the Maltar site, which is close to Lake Baikal in, uh, in, in Siberia. This is just on the border between Mongolia and Siberia. And this individual basically turned out to be, uh, roughly speaking, a hybrid between Native Americans and uh, what we call Western Eurasians, which are basically Europeans, genetically speaking, right? And I always learned in school that Native Americans is a group of peoples from East Asia, I mean, East Asians, crossing the Bering Strait and getting into the Americas, right? And then Mm -hmm. in isolation, becoming what we call Native Americans. And, well, it turned out that one-third of the Native American genome are actually deriving from a group of people that resembles these Malta individuals. And this is a group of people that is today dead. I mean, you don't find any living descendants of the Maltar. The last ones, to our big surprise, we found 5,000 years ago in Central Asia, and we, which were the first mm. ones we know of who that domesticated the horse in Central Asia. Uh, it's huh. called Botai. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. But what, I had no idea. Yeah, it's really fascinating. But these guys, back in the day, you know, early Stone Age, they seem to have occupied large territories of the Northern Hemisphere. And there we can estimate even that 23,000 years ago, they meet another people of basal East Asians. And this group of people, we have found some evidence of them in Siberia, also ancient genomics evidence. And those two peoples are meeting each other around 23,000 years ago, mixing up. And basically, if you want the child of that meeting or the children of that meeting becomes what we today called, genetically speaking, Native Americans. So the whole process, if you want, of how, from a genetic standpoint, I'm not saying culturally here, but from a genetic standpoint, how Native Americans were formed, if you want, is uh, 
was something that I, I don't think anyone really had imagined. And a few years later, we found up in Alaska, we found a group and the most ancient skeleton there, which is 11,000 years old from called Upperson River. And that turned out to be the most basal, genetic basal group of Native Americans. So it's a group that we don't see, we, we're not aware of any living descendants today. They diversify from other Native Americans 21,000 years ago. I mean, they split off from other Native Americans. But they are Native Americans. They're closer related to Native Americans than to anybody else. But that was occupying all of that area up in Alaska back in the day, right? And today they have been replaced by other groups of Native Americans that commonly are known as Athabascan-speaking populations, right? The same with the Clovis, for example. I mean, Clovis... This the earliest evidence of human presence that everybody agrees about. I mean, some people believe there was humans earlier than Clovis. So do I in the Americas, but everybody can agree that Clovis was a group of people that made these very characteristic stone tools around 13,000 years ago. And no one knew who was Clovis. Was Clovis the ancestors of present-day Native Americans or were Clovis somebody else, right? I mean, people have even suggested, you know, Europeans you know, other groups of Asians. And by sequencing the genome, we could show, well, yes, you know, Clovis is directly ancestral to many Native Americans that we see today. So many of these very basal questions has been addressed with ancient DNA. It's something that's really near and dear to my heart because when I was 11 years old, I grew up in the very middle of Washington state, just down the Columbia River from where I grew up. There was a 9,000 year old set of human remains that were found. They're called Kennewick Man. And I followed this really closely because I was 11 and I loved history. And so there was an enormous controversy over the remains and who would keep custody of the remains and who was going to study them and should they be returned to the indigenous peoples of the area for reburial. Your team actually worked on Kennewick Man and you you guys extracted and sequenced his genome. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a remarkable story, right? Because as you probably know, I mean, it resulted in this lawsuit where the U.S. government and the five Native American tribes that claimed Kennewick Man as their ancestor on one side, and then you had a group of archaeologists and the physical anthropologists basically suing the U.S. government because the U.S. government wanted to repatriate Kennebec Man to these five tribes that uh, claimed him as their ancestor. And uh, the scientists said, well, we will not allow this because Kennebec Man is not a Native American. And that was based on what is known as craniometrics. It means skull morphology, where you measure the skull. Then uh, based on that, they said, well, uh, Kennebec Man is not Native American. Some argued that he was European even though he's 9,000 years old, others argued he is more like Ainu, which is the indigenous population of Japan, but not ancestral to Native Americans, if you want. And after 10 years or so of court case, the scientists actually won the court case. They tried to uh, retrieve DNA, but couldn't get anything out of it. I mean, I think it even reached 60 minutes. I mean, it was a big thing in the States, and it, it really created a really deep rift between science and and indigenous peoples in the U.S. because it became kind of the symbol on who have the right to the human remains, right? Is it the tribes or is it the scientists? And obviously the tribes weren't happy with the outcome of of that court case because they lost it. And then we got involved uh, years after and we got the, the, the remaining part of the handbone 
that they originally tried to retrieve DNA from. We got that from the Corps of Engineers, which are kind of responsible to take care of the remains. And from there, we could sequence the whole genome of, of Kennebec man. And it turned out uh, Kennebec is Native American. Genetically speaking, Kennebec is Native American. We even compared him, you know, to Ainu uh, of, uh, of Japan and Europeans and Polynesians, whatever has been suggested as his closest ancestors. And he was no closer to those than, he, than a contemporary Native American is, right? So in other words, I mean, from a genetic standpoint, you can say Kennebec is a, a Native American or the ancient one, as they call him. And the finding basically resulted, as far as I know, that President Obama, before he left the White House, signed off on what the ancient one back to the five tribes. And they got him and they reburied him. It was a huge controversy because and like it really is hard to overstate as as you mentioned like just how divisive this was for especially the the tribes of that region who have not been treated especially well by the US government and the other uh late arriving settlers in the region i say this as somebody who grew up there if you go mm-hmm. on drive through the yakima reservation it, it can be a pretty bleak place so it's hard to overstate like how much this meant and it also is i mean it's really fascinating because you say like that native americans are the group to whom henwick man or the ancient one is most closely related but the skeletal morphology the way the skull looked did not reflect that no and so and that tells us that the skeletal morphology is not a good proxy exactly genetic ancestry exactly i mean and we have seen this before uh, you know we were later on involved in in a similar case with uh, the oldest uh, natural mummy known in the world uh, which is also found in the states in nevada called the spirit caveman which is around 11,000 years old. And there the Paitsushoni had been claiming Spirit Cayman for many years, since the 1950s when he was discovered. And the museum wouldn't give it uh, away. And, you know, there had been all these speculations, again, on skull morphology that, you know, it's not a Native American, it's something else, some kind of European-like individual and so forth. The tribe and the museum agreed that we should do it. And... Uh, it was decided if it's a Native American, the tribes will get came and back. If it's something else, well, the museum will keep it. And it turned out just like the ancient one to be, uh, you can say, a Native American, genetically speaking. And it resulted in in the parts of Shoni after decades uh, of, of law struggles, uh, basically got him returned. And um, in that incident, I even uh, participated myself in the in the reburial, and which was a, a, a great experience and an eye-opener for me because, you know, there was no press allowed. It was a private event, and uh, even though the skeleton is 11,000 years old and maybe people like you and I have a hard time understanding why uh, this is uh, so important for the tribes and so emotional, it was very clear it's the same as if you and I were burying our mother or grandmother. We might not understand it, but we, I certainly learned to appreciate it. I mean, that uh, this is a real feeling and they feel very, very strongly about this and it's extremely emotional. There was nobody to show off for, if you want. It was a mm-hmm. private event, right? So it was a great experience to see this. And I think uh, what I have, you can say, I mean, it's, it's always been hard being in these kind of very legal uh, struggles because you can say I'm a scientist and I will have to go with the results, right? Whatever we find, I mean, this is what I will have to report. But I just have to say that one thing I've learned from all this is that it's terrible to see that people 
who are, you can say, culturally, religiously, emotionally, so are believing in something very strongly, right? Like, for example, that they will face their ancestors in the afterlife and be put responsible for how they treated their ancestors. And then for decades, right, they haven't been able, they haven't been allowed to practice that. In other words, you know, living peoples are suffering because they are not allowed to practice what they believe in. This is not something science we can justify is is happening. I mean, I personally, I just don't think even a DNA test was necessary. You know, these people are attached to these skeletons and uh, they should be in charge of them. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. That's one of the really interesting things about your background is despite the fact that you're a scientist, you have spent a lot of time out in the field. You've spent time among indigenous communities. How has that affected the way that you understand the scientific aspects of it? How has that affected the way that you ask questions of the, I mean, of the evidence? It's, it's has changed everything for me. I mean, uh, it's something I would wish that everybody working with ancient human remains uh, would be doing because it has been a tremendous eye-opener. I mean, it has completely changed my own understanding, attitude, conception of all these things. I mean, when I started doing this line of work, you know, I I had the view, well, human history belongs to humanity, right? I mean, we all come out of Africa, we all related, and therefore, you know, no one should be in a position where they can determine that scientific progress in understanding human history shouldn't happen scientifically, right? That was my original standpoint. And then I went to Australia and I worked with Aborigines Australians and I was out in the communities and I suddenly realized why this is not the case. Why it actually is super important that these peoples have a say and they have to be involved and they have to endorse these projects. And the reason being that you can say, first of all, I mean, if you think about it, what is, is ethics about? Ethics is about taking into account anyone who can be impacted of your findings, right? And what I realized in these communities, I'm sure it's the same also, my experience in the States the same, is that these communities, many of these communities is under a lot of pressure, right? I mean, they're they are really struggling because they're under a lot of uh, social problems, drug problems, alcohol problems, unemployment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so they're under pressure, you can say, from the surrounding community. And in many cases, the one keeping these communities together and really are making a massive effort to actually keep things together in this very difficult world uh, is uh, the older, it's the traditionalists, right? And if I'm coming as a scientist and suddenly telling them, well, guys, I know your oral tradition says A, but my DNA data says B, and, uh, you know, I'm right, right? You're undermining 
you can say the status of these peoples within the community, right? Mm-hmm. And the important thing to say here, then some people might say, oh yeah, but of course we should go with the truth and all that. But the thing is that what people don't maybe appreciate is even the scientific truth is changing. That's the reason when we went from doing mitochondrial DNA to doing ancient genomes, you know, a lot of the human history was rewritten once again, right? And I'm sure, you know, 20 years from now, somebody will rewrite some of what I said based on new technology. And of course, I believe we are getting closer and closer to to what happened in the past, but it doesn't mean it's set in stone, right? And if I'm coming in with my DNA results destroying the belief in an oral tradition or something because of my DNA evidence and then bloody hell, it turns out not even to be the real truth, right? Uh, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, mm-hmm. so, so you know, this has to happen. It, my experience with all this, I also spent time as a trapper in Siberia when I was young and that's where I started kind of appreciating some of these things. But it was first really when I started doing DNA work and spending time in the communities that I realized, you know, where these peoples are coming from and I appreciated where they're coming from. And that, I I just have to say, it completely changed my view about these things. And and we just have to remember when, you know, this is a history program or I'm doing history, you're doing history. And it's not something that our blood is saving lives, right? I mean, yes, mm-hmm. it's it's a, interesting to read about. It's it's important. We think it's super important. Many people uh, like to hear about it. But is it really reasonable that for me to do my research, some living peoples in some indigenous communities should suffer their entire life because of that? No, it's not, right? So therefore, yeah. either you do it in agreement with them or you don't do it. That's why I have moved to today. It's not where I started, but that's where I ended. (laughs) See, one of the things that had struck me as really interesting about that is I think that people alive today, people who are comfortable making those kinds of judgments of in, about indigenous communities should probably think harder about the fictions that their lives are built on. Yes. So like, even if, even if it turns out that there are some legendary or traditional aspects to the way that these people are envisioning their relationships with their ancestors or with a particular, or with a particular location, everybody does that. Mm. We do that all the exactly. time, the, no matter no matter how advanced you consider your civilization to be or your your culture, or your pol- your kind of political order to be. That is still built on fictions. Money yes. is a fiction for crying exactly. out loud. You yeah, know? yeah, no, like, I agree. I, it, uh, yeah. I completely agree. And you also just have to. I mean, the thing is, we just have to appreciate that people, different cultures have different beliefs, but also, you know, for example, oral tradition, you know, uh, where I'm coming from in Denmark, we're putting our ancestors, if they're more than 100 years old, we're putting their skulls on a shelf, right? And we don't have an issue with it. But we also, I don't even know the name of my great-grandmother, right? Because, you know, history is not, in that sense, uh, is part of uh, our current culture. But if when I meet a person from Chechnya, you know, if they can't mention, you know, uh, the names of their ancestors at least 10 generations back in time, they're considered really poor quality individuals, right? And if you go to Aborigine Australians, you know, as part of the initiation ritual, they should repeat a written story uh, without any flaws, right? And, and of course, if you have that kind of culture, well, then I'm sure, you know, a lot of the oral tradition is in fact reflecting something real, right? And they can actually, if you want, they have histories going f- way further back in time, that what, what I have in my culture, and we just have to, I've actually started, I have to say, I've, I, I even use it in my work now. I'm trying to listen to these oral traditions 
because I think they, in many cases, are telling something that are really interesting to to look into scientifically, right? Because they're giving you some hints of what might have actually have happened, uh, you can say, in the past. And it's just a matter of instead of just saying, because I don't understand that somebody can be emotionally attached to a, a skeleton that is 11,000 years old, then, you know, it's not the right thing, right? It's just that we are different and we have different beliefs and we have to respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And it's like, as a person who's trying to understand the whole picture, these are all different kinds of evidence. And and no matter what kind of field you're in, exactly. no matter what kind of story you're trying to tell, you've got to weigh different kinds of evidence. You've got to take them seriously. You've got to understand how you relate to that evidence, what kinds of questions you can ask, what it's capable of answering. Because you take something like skull morphology, right? Like we were, we were mm. talking about with Kennewick Man earlier. That's a metric. You can ask questions of it, but it doesn't mean it's going to be able to answer the question that you want it to exactly no i i, I completely agree and and you know i i work multidisciplinarily although my sp- uh, you can say expertise if you want or my specialty is genetics and ancient genetics mm-hmm. i mean i'm collaborating with archaeologists i'm collaborating with uh, mathematicians historians linguistics i mean i collaborate even with uh, you can say the as you say take in oral tradition i mean a scientist what you are after you're trying to get as close as you can to what you would call what actually happened in the past, right? And in order to do that, you're trying to take in as much evidence as you can because every single thing is evidence. It's not like I can say, well, I just do my genetics and I don't give a f- about what archaeologists have found out, right? Because obviously they also have some really important discoveries and something very important to say about these things, right? And it's not like genetics is the only answer to all the questions. Genetics can answer and help answer some questions, right? But there's tons of questions that genetics can't answer today and where you have to go to other disciplines, right? And and where you have a strong case, scientifically speaking, is obviously if different lines of evidence, let's say genetics and archaeology together or genetics and linguistics together, points in the same direction, right? That's where you start having, uh, you can say, you're building up your case uh, from mo- from different lines of evidence, and it's very, it's really where these lines of evidence is meeting and can be interpreted to represent the same story. That's when you are probably getting close to something of the truth. One of the things that's always been really fascinating to me is when you have different bodies of evidence that are telling different stories Mm -hmm. when they don't necessarily point to the same conclusion. And you can even see that within the genome when you have mitochondrial DNA, the maternal line, Mm -hmm. Y chromosomes, the male Mm -hmm. line, and the whole genome Mm -hmm. that are all telling slightly different stories about uh, population history. Exactly. I mean, a a very good example of that is actually the skeleton I just talked about, the 24,000-year-old, you can say that is ancestral to Native American. I mean, if you just looked at the mitochondrial DNA of that individual, and this is what we would have been capable to do maybe 11, 12 12 years ago, right? Then we would have said, oh my God, this is upper paleolithic hunter-gatherer. I mean, early stone age hunter-gatherer from Europe. How interesting. We find this individual in Central Asia 24,000 years ago, and we would completely have missed out on the connection to Native Americans, right? Which is actually mm-hmm. where this individual, when you look at the genome, where there's way, way more information than in the mitochondria, that's what the genome said. Well, the closest living individuals today 
of this multi-individual ancient 24,000-year-old individual is actually contemporary Native Americans. We have covered so much, and unfortunately, we've got it. We've got to cut it short here. But I had one more question I wanted to ask you, and it's about yet another source of evidence that that I think we're probably going to be hearing a lot more about in the near future, and that's proteomics. Yeah. So, especially dental proteins. So, your yeah. team really recently um, has has been working with these, and they can last far longer than ancient DNA in remains. How are they different? What more do you think we can do with these? I mean, the big advantage of using proteins is, as you say, how far back in time you can go. Because, I mean, the proteins are much more stable over time than DNA. So DNA will degrade, as I talked about, and it will go faster if it's a hot and humid environment, right? So in the tropics, for example, you know, it it doesn't survive well. And you can maybe, if you're lucky, you can go back maybe 10,000 years or something, but that's about it, you know, and, and it doesn't survive. So there are, the proteins simply survives way longer. And that means you can go back in time into environments where, you know, there's just no hope of really finding any DNA survival. But you can say the drawback, on the other hand, compared to DNA, or what makes it more problematic compared to DNA, is proteins is, is not as variable. There's not as much you can say information, if you want, in in many proteins as there is in DNA. So therefore, uh, you know, for many years, we have known that proteins survived, uh, you know, collagen, for example, survived for a long time. But the problem was there wasn't really, you know, there was no real differences between, let's say, a Neanderthal and a modern human, right, in in this collagen. And this is where the enamel protein uh, holds great promise, right? So we discovered that a couple of years, well, a year ago or something. And the cool thing about it is, of course, the teeth or enamel is some of the best preserved materials in the fossil record. So you you very often find enamel and everything else is gone. But in the proteins, there's enough variation that you can actually even separate closely related species, right? And that means you can start looking at things, for example, how is... Homo antecessor related to Neanderthals and modern humans. And that's what we did, right? And so so this holds a great promise at the moment for going back in time and addressing these very basic questions about the relationship, biological relationship between, for example, different species of humans across time. But it's just in its, uh, you can say, early years, right? I mean, uh, protein work is where... Ancient DNA work was around, uh, well, close to 20 years ago, I would say, right? So there's there's room for some improvements. <laughs> well, it's incredibly exciting stuff. And I, I mean, it's funny thinking about 10, 20 years, like I first started paying attention to this really heavily about 10 years ago and just how far it's come in that time. I cannot wait to see where it goes. And I'm sure you and your lab are going to be right at the forefront of that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure, too. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and drop me a line if you'd like to chat about the fall of the Roman Empire or the rise of the modern world. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show at Tides History. If you haven't already, Don't forget to subscribe to Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. 
Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.